In the first four or five years that I was doing my Vipassana practice, there was a line that came to me, I started reflecting on my own experience was, can my eyes truly see? Because I started to become quite aware that I wasn't seeing very clearly at all. And I want to talk about that theme this evening, uh, can my eyes truly see? I'd like to start with a quote from Goethe, who says, what is most difficult of all, that which seems easiest of all, to see with your eyes what lies before your eyes? When I was in California uh, visiting some friends, uh, I think last year or the year before, they were passing around a book. And perhaps you've seen this book. Uh, there, there's a book that has a number of pictures in it, but the pictures look like what you look at through a kaleidoscope. There's no real image at all. It's just a lot of colors and shapes and forms, but every page has a different design on it. And what one is supposed to do in looking at this book is to look at the picture in such a way you kind of make your eyes a little bit funny so that an image pops out of the picture that you can't see until you kind of turn your eyes just right. And it's, a, it's kind of a fun game that we've played together because in each, each image, each a picture, if you can get your eyes just a certain way, this amazing world pops out. It could be a world of, of, of all these different color birds or uh, different mansions and palaces or angels and flowers. But, but just looking at it, it just looks all these, like all these squiggly lines and colors. And so just that kind of just kind of almost having to make your eyes a little bit cross-eyed and then whoo, there it is. And sometimes I think that our meditation's a little bit like that, although we're not really trying to do something with our eyes. But it's uh, uh, maybe a, a deeper kind of vision where if we can just kind of twist our perception just a little bit, Something shows up that we haven't seen before. Something's revealed before our eyes that we haven't seen before. So in a way, we might say that meditation shifts our focus of attention from looking in one way to looking in another way, in a different way. And this shift is really radical. It's radical. I mean, this shift that happens when we start to see things in a different way changes our life. It's transformative in our life. We begin to see in a fresh way, a radical way of perceiving our world. And why is this so radical for us? Because our perception generally is quite confused quite distorted, we rarely see things as they actually are. In fact, the definition of vipassana is to see things clearly, to see things as they actually are. This is what we're trying to do. There's a story that I really like that, has, that is in some ways a metaphor from the very beginning of my practice called Painting Tigers on the Wall. And some of you may have heard it, but for those of you who haven't, perhaps it'll have the same impact on you that it has for me. It's a story of uh, a primitive man going into a cave in ancient times and going back into his cave, and, and it's a place where he would do his painting on the wall. And one day, while he was in the cave, 
he was putting the finishing touches on this picture of a tiger. And just as he got finished with it, he looked at it and went, oh my God, it's a tiger, and he ran out of the cave. <laughs> and in a way, that's what we do. We paint tigers on the walls, the wall of our consciousness, and we get so scared we run away. But we don't see that, in fact, we are the artist. <laughs> I am the creator of that image. But they can become so real that it scares me out of my wits. <laughs> so now I have this handy phrase for myself, oh, painting tigers on the wall. You know, when I see myself getting involved in that, it's been a very useful phrase. So what happens? What happens that we get so scared or that we take what we're thinking, what arises in our consciousness to be so true? Why does it seem to be so real? We have this word in the teachings which we call, which is identification. It's the word that we use to, as the, the word to describe this process that happens when a thought arises or an image arises, an association of those thoughts arises in our mind, that we get identified with it. This identification is like stickiness in the mind. It's like glue in the mind. You know, it's like those thoughts and images, uh, be, be, they get stuck. We get caught in the grip of these, of these thoughts and images. And one teacher, Ruth Dennison, called this Velcro mind. You know, Velcro mind, that these, this, this stickiness, this way of getting attached to our mental activity is like Velcro. And you know what Velcro is like. Those, those, you know, to try to undo Velcro, you know, sometimes it's so stuck together, it's hard to get it apart. And sometimes we might experience in our meditation like tearing Velcro apart to try to unstick ourselves sometimes from our thoughts, from our uh, pictures and stories in our mind. Sometimes the thoughts in our mind can seem just like maybe having a radio on in the background. You know, they're just kind of little thoughts that almost can be like, like a stream of music in the background, and it's really not impacting. It's not bothering us at all. You might have experienced this when you're, you know, taking a walk uh, around the loop or going over to the pond. Just a, you know, very soft kind of quiet uh, uh, thoughts, uh, voices in the mind, but not really bothering, not impacting. But other times, these thoughts can seem so loud and they can be, seem so, so real that that's all there is. What I'm thinking is the way it is and that's all. There's no other reality whatsoever. We've had these two different kinds of experiences. When we get identified in this way, it's like we tighten around our thoughts. And in that tightening, our view of what we're thinking about, what we're perceiving, it narrows, it contracts, and we can get very small in that view. And we can't see any other possibility. I have a, a cartoon here that you won't, but won't be able to see, but I can post it afterwards. I'll describe it. There's two men standing next to each other, and one man has kind of an Eskimo coat on, and he has his hands in two buckets of water. And one bucket of water is 40 degrees, and another bucket of water is 80 degrees. And then he's standing next to another man who has his swimming trunks on, you know, nothing on. And he has his hands in the 80-degree water bucket and one that's 120 degrees. And so they're yelling at each other. And one man who, who has the coat on is saying, it's hot. And the other man who has his swimming trunks on saying, it's cold. 
and they're just yelling at each other, trying to get each other to under to hear their experience and and uh, think it's the only reality. Can't you understand? It's cold. Can't you understand? It's hot. And yet the whole. Uh, experience that each one is having is entirely different than the other one. You know, the other one has different clothes on, different hands, has his hands in different temperatures of water. And yet that's, that's really what is happening to us all the time, that we are being influenced by certain conditions which give rise to a certain experience, which is uniquely our own, but then we think for some reason everybody else should be having the same experience and if they don't get it, then something's wrong. And then we get, can get quite angry and quite frustrated and really start uh, yelling at each other like we do in our, in our world, in our, in our life. Genu generally, this process, is, this process of identification is pretty unconscious. When we're so identified, we don't see it. You know, that is also one of the, fact, the, one of the factors of identification, is we're identified. <laughs> we don't see how caught we are. And for some people, when I've been, been realizing this, is some people don't realize they have any thoughts at all. You know, there's, a, there's no awareness of a thought process. And I, I, one, of the, one time that I became aware of this was a, quite a long time ago when I was sitting in a car with one of my relatives and it was raining outside, so we just sat in the car for a while. And I said, why don't we meditate? It was quite a long time ago. <laughs> and this, this person never meditated before and never really looked at his mind before. And so I said, okay, let's just be quiet for five minutes, and it was raining. So let's just listen to the raindrops, because I really wanted to find out what would happen if he saw his own mind. What can happen when you do sit and be quiet? And after five minutes, I was really excited and said, okay, you know, what happened? What did you see? He said, I didn't have any thoughts. <laughs> no. And I, I just felt skeptical <laughs> of that. But it did make me wonder, you know, truly that perhaps, you know, it's, it, there's a certain sophistication that comes about through that reflexive quality to be able to see our own mind. And the, uh, the power of that once we are able to bring the, the mental activity into view of consciousness, it's a very powerful shift, shift that happens for human beings. So it's helpful to look closely at our minds to understand what actually happens that we find ourselves in this predicament. This predicament of getting so identified that we can't see beyond our view. We get so caught and narrow in our view of things. The Buddha, in his investigation, actually gave us quite a, a lot of information around this particular arising and gave us a model for understanding this. In the human body, we have our five senses and our mind. The five sense doors of, 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 of sight and, and, and the smell and taste and hearing and touching and our, our mind, our thought process. What happens is that there is the coming together of the, take for example, the sight an object of the sight, a sight, a form of, of the sight, and the sense consciousness. And these three things come together. This is really the fullness of the sense impression, the contact, the eyes, the form of the eyes, and the consciousness together. When this contact happens, this gives rise to a feeling 
And in this case, the feeling is either pleasant or unpleasant. It has a tone of pleasant or unpleasant. It's either a pleasant sight or an unpleasant sight, or it could be somewhere in between, kind of a neutral tone. What one feels when we have a feeling, either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, this is what gives rise to perception. So there's the contact, feeling, and perception. In the, in the teachings, they actually all three ri- arise together. They can't really be separated. Now, perception is the factor of mind that recognizes and distinguishes form. So we have the sights, the sounds, tastes, smells, touch, and the mind objects. And these are perceived and distinguished. And we learn language to label these forms so that we can sort, sort it out and talk about it and communicate it and understand our, our world. The language helps us separate out these forms from the chaos. This world would seem very chaotic. The language helps us distinguish this and make sense of our world. For example, we may have contact with a sound at our ear. We experience that sound as a vibration. And then the feeling arises, oh, it's a pleasant vibration. And then perception arises, oh, it's a bell. It's a bell. It comes together. We have recognition of that sound. But rarely is our experience that simple. Rarely can we so wonderfully enjoy such a full, bare sense impression. Because the word, or the the concept, in this case, bell, gets fixed in the memory. And we perceive, what can happen is that we can perceive that experience through our memory rather than the immediate experience itself. We can think that we already know what a bell sounds like. And the concept, or that memory, can act as a filter over the experience so that we're not really directly experiencing that immediacy of the moment. Not always, but sometimes this happens. And then we can miss the experience itself. We miss the uniqueness, the immediacy of what is happening in that moment. We have to be, it's very interesting to watch in our experience what's actually occurring. Are we with the experience or are we back just a little bit into our memory, into our concept, where we can so easily lose interest and we say, oh yeah, I know that. I've heard a bell. How many times have I heard the bell? No. And even at the end of a sitting, you know, we know that the bell is going to ring. But do we really listen to the bell? You know, it's almost like uh, it, it, doesn't be, it can become not so important. But of course, with the bell, we certainly have some strong associations. You know, particularly here in the meditation hall. It's like, that bell means something. <laughs> And sometimes it means the end of pain, it means the end of boredom, it means the end of, uh, of having to sit with something difficult. How many times have people said, oh, I was saved by the bell? No. So in this case, the bell holds some association for us. So in fact, are we really listening to the bell? Or are we involved in our associations? Have we really experienced the bell separate from the concept of bell? I mean, we can take this even further, you know. Do we experience a person when we're listening to them? Or are we just experiencing our whole load of associations that we have about that person when we're meeting them? Or when we come to a plate of food, 
Are we tasting that food? Or how much of the past, our memories, associations, are we bringing into that experience? What's the possibility of being with what's happening in a very simple way? And not saying that we should be able to do that, but rather suggesting the possibility of investigating this process so we can see if there's something interfering, something separating us from being able to to be in the immediacy of the present moment. The bell is different each time it's rung. Every moment of experience is unique. It's not going to happen again. And how often we miss it. How often we miss it because we're caught up in something else, some other idea that we're identified with, or we believe in, or we're caught up in. We miss it. Never to be there again. I remember one time on a three-month retreat in here at IMS when we were having a blizzard outside. And I was upstairs in the, what used to be the old annex, and now we have a new annex. But there was a, uh, the door looking out, uh, out in, the, in the night, and there was the light uh, shining on the door. And so the, the snow was just peltering against the glass. And I was fairly concentrated at that point, probably about seven weeks into a retreat, and was watching the snowflakes hit the glass, and the light was hitting in such a way that I could see all the different snowflakes. And I looked very carefully, and I could see that every snowflake had a different pattern. Every snowflake that hit the window had a completely unique configuration. But there was just enough heat on the window so that it lasted about three seconds, and then it passed away. So the life, the whole life of that configuration was about three seconds. And there, just, there, just the blessing of that particular moment, or those moments, was that I was able to be there and receive that. And that Experience happened quite a long time ago, and it's very, very fresh. It's as if, as I speak about it, I can experience it just as if it's happening. It's so vivid for me. So we get in trouble when we think that we already know an experience. Oh, I've heard that, or I've felt that. I've, I know that person. I've, I've been there. I've done that. You know? Now, it's kind of like going to a restaurant and we eat the menu instead of tasting the food. You know, oh, I've tasted that. Let me look. You know, oh, I don't want that. I've had that. Oh, I know what that tastes like, you know. But until we really taste the food, do we know what we're talking about? I mean, does the word bell mean anything when we experience the actuality? What does the word bell have to do with that? <laughs> you know, this is, but yet yeah, this is, this is the way we're conditioned. You know, we we do seem to take the concept for the thing itself. And rarely do we have either the, the, the remembering or uh, the reminder, the, the, the something <laughs> to help us wake up to the immediacy of the experience. It's a poem that someone gave me, I'm not sure where it came from, called These Mysteries. It is the ordinary mysteries that we don't attend, the everyday miracles, the greening of the leaf outside the window of the kitchen where we eat our breakfast, 
the crying of the seagull overhead as we stand waiting for the number 10 bus, the rise and fall of the chest as the breath gently enters, pumping the blood through our veins, the air on our face, the earth beneath our feet. We don't see, we don't hear, and we don't feel. Day after day, we sit in silent meditation, intent on the mind-created goal of subduing mind through mind. So lost in mind's ceaseless striving, we don't even know we're alive. We pass them by, these mysteries. There are other things to which we must attend, the plans we have for the life we are going to lead. We pass by, unknowing, unaware of the treasure we hold in the palm of our hand. But of course, it's never just one concept like bell and then our memory of the bell, which really gets us in trouble. But what gives rise to the true complexity that we find ourselves involved in is really all the associations that we carry in our memories. In Pali, the word that is used to describe this, to name this, that we all, all us teachers and, and those who know it really love a lot, is called papancha. Mm -hmm. Papancha. Papanchas are those associations that arise with the contact from memory, uh, conditioned from the past. These associations form our views. They're loaded with distortions by our unconscious projections, preconceived ideas, prejudices, and desires. And this really forms the complexity of our mind. We carry these associations with us, and they just bombard our consciousness. And we get so caught up in these, they do act as a filter, like a conceptual overlay that can seem like a veil between ourselves and the world, ourselves and our senses, even ourselves and our own mind. And these associations can be really overwhelming if there's little awareness of the process itself. One example of this is a good friend of mine was sitting a weekend retreat. Uh, it was a long weekend, Friday to Monday retreat at Spirit Rock. And she had a papancha experience. At Spirit Rock, the dining hall, this is in California, Spirit Rock, California, the dining hall is uh, about a f three or four minute walk uh, away from the meditation hall in a separate building. And on the last night at 6.15 p.m., she walked up to the meditation hall for the evening, for the evening sit before the Dharma talk. And when she got up there, she thought the sitting started at 6.15, and when she got up there, there wasn't anybody at all in the hall. And so um, her first thought was, they ended the retreat early and everybody went home, and they didn't tell me. And so she was sitting there, and she just thought that was very strange, that the retreat would be over, it, but they wouldn't tell her. So she thought, no, maybe that's not right. Maybe they just moved this particular sitting from the meditation hall to the walking room, which was up some stairs in another part of the building. She said, yeah, they're probably all up there. So she walked up there, and nobody was up there either. And so she just stood there for a minute, and she said, maybe everybody's just disappeared. You know, they've just, <laughs> they've just disappeared into thin air. And she really started to imagine that she was the only one at Spirit Rock. <laughs> and that everyone just sort of even le levitated into the ethereal realms or something. <laughs> and then she, she didn't panic. <laughs> but she, she walked back downstairs and then walked outside and just thought she would just kind of <laughs> sit with that for a minute. 
And then the bell rang for the sitting. And then everybody started walking up to the meditation hall. It was about 25 after 6. And she said, oh, okay, I just got the time wrong. And then she went into the sitting and sat. But for about 10 minutes, she was completely lost in this hallucination. And it seems really bizarre to talk about it, but is it that (laughs) different than a lot of the things that arise for us? The way that we imagine the things that are happening or things that are going on? I wonder if we don't often live our lives that way in these kinds of imaginary worlds where we really believe for a period of time that's the way it is. I mean, how many projections, how many views have we had about people here that we're sitting with? And this is what can happen in the silence when we're not talking about, talking to each other. A lot of fantasies, imaginary ideas can arise about people. It's kind of a blank slate, so you can put all kinds of things on top of it. But if we started to find out people's stories here, and we started to hear what was really going on for different individuals in the group here, that we hear, the teachers here, how quickly we might start changing our view. We might start changing the way that we're feeling about people here in the hall. Because everything is here. Everything's, everything's here. Birth, sickness, aging, and death. You know, whether it's happening for individuals here or for people that we know and that we love, it's all here. So this is really more of our experience than the simplicity, that conceptual overlay that we get involved with, and we miss that simplicity, the immediacy that unique moment that is born and dies moment to moment to moment. We take our thoughts to be so real, but yet this is what shapes our reality. This is how we know our reality. Here's a joke. That kind of exemplifies this. There was a samurai who went to see a Zen master. And after talking to the guards at the monastery, they let him in, and the Zen master agreed to see him. And as he walked in, the Zen master respectfully received the samurai. But when the samurai met him, he started to abuse the Zen master. And he started saying, you're a pig. You look like a pig. You dress like a pig. You walk like a pig. And the Zen master really was not taken aback. He just sat there and he looked back and he said, hmm, you look like a Buddha. (laughs) You dress like a Buddha. You walk like a Buddha. And the samurai started to feel very flattered. You know, oh, he was a bit surprised, but he was very, very proud that the Zen master was seeing him this way. But he didn't really know if he was worthy of being a Buddha. And he asked the Zen master, why? Why are you calling me a Buddha? And the Zen master said, a pig sees a pig, and a Buddha sees a Buddha. perceptions shape our reality. (laughs) We have to be a little bit careful 
These are also called our fixations, the way we get fixated in our mind. We get caught. Our view gets limited. We can't see clearly. Sokni Rinpoche, uh, one of our Tibetan teachers, says, Fixating mind is like ice shaped in different forms. The attention freezes, and we're not free. We're frozen in these distorted views. Our view of reality is distorted, like ice shaped in different forms. We take our views to be the objective truth. How easily we do this. And, and we as teachers, we hear this, you know, particularly uh, in our interviews. You know, for example, somebody might come in and say, everybody looks so grim here. You know, it's like, it's like somebody's died or something. People seem so heavy, so depressed, you know. And, and that is the way the retreat is. And, when, you know, why do you, why do you continue like this? Why don't you do something to change it? You know, do, you know, have some songs or, you know, some <laughs> jokes or something. You know. And then, and then the very next yogi will come in and say, oh, you know, it's just, I just look around and everything's just light. There's just, you know, so much joy and, you know, love is just pouring out of people's hearts. <laughs> and it's just, it's so wonderful that you provide this kind of environment. And, and it, in, in it's, it's as if that is the way it is. And there, sometimes I wonder how much recognition there is for that person to see it's just a view. It's just a view that there isn't any objective reality out there. It's just a view. Simply a view. And you know, so I ask you, uh, what views are you holding about being here? Just for this moment, moment's reflection views about yourself, views about others, views about the teachers, views about the retreat. As you reflect on that, can you get a sense, perhaps, that maybe it's based on your unique experience? Perhaps Maybe others aren't feeling the same way or may have their own views, their own experience. Can you hold it just as a simple view? You know, it's not to say the views are wrong or the views are bad or that we shouldn't have views. We're human. Of course we're going to have our views, our our perceptions, our ideas about things. But can we just see them for what they are? and hold them lightly, not hold them too tightly about things. Yet these views are so powerful. The conditioning of our views are so powerful that we do see them as the truth. We think, I know. Last month I was in my uh, apartment uh, that I've just moved into in Seattle, and uh, Right outside, that the house next door is fairly close, and outside there was this very loud noise. And I was the midday, and I was trying to do some, some work at my desk, and there's this loud noise. And I knew that they were painting uh, the house next door and working on some scaffolding. And I really got irritated, and I thought, doesn't this man know how much noise he's making? You know, and, and that it's, you know, this is a little bit too much. No. And I'm going to go tell that man that it's just, you know, to be a little bit more sensitive about how much noise he's making. And so I went over to the window, and I looked up, and on the scaffolding was this man 
who was carrying on this very, very um, narrow plat uh, uh, of a scaffolding, he was carrying this very heavy vacuum cleaner. That he, and he was really struggling, and he was kind of sighing, and he was trying to vacuum off the dust from removing the paint on the side of the house. And it, it, he was just so, it was so um, hard and heavy. And I, it, just seeing him, I, my heart just opened wide open, and I felt so sorry for him that he had to work so hard, um, and he had to carry this really heavy piece of machinery up on this very high little... Uh, uh, scaffolding, and I just, everything just crumbled. My whole view of what I thought about that man, <laughs> what he was doing, um, what he should be doing, everything just shifted, and my heart just opened for him. And I wished that I could help him in some way so that he could have an easier time. We We don't... We don't know what we're doing. No, we so easily get caught in our idea and then our reaction that closes our heart, that separates us off. Can we, can we hold that a little bit lightly? But our views, our views don't only hurt ourselves. We also get caught in collective views, when we, a large group of us are carrying the same view, and the power of that has a very strong impact in our culture. just want to read um, something from, from uh, Deepak Chopra. He reported on an experiment conducted among the Tarahumara Indians in Mexico, a group known for their running ability. Routinely, certain members of the tribe ran the equivalent of a marathon or more every day and had regular races between groups. The most intriguing aspect of their culture, however, was that they believed that the best runners were those in their 60s. A team of researchers showed that the best lung capacity, cardiovascular fitness, and endurance were indeed found in the runners in their 60s. Dr. Chopra points out that for this belief to translate into physical reality, the entire tribe has to believe it. The whole tribe would have to hold that view in order for that to continue. And then he goes on, just in a different way, say, in our ageist culture, many women, instead of believing in their capacity to remain strong, attractive, and vital throughout their lives, instead come to expect their bodies and minds to deteriorate with age. Thus, we as a society collectively create a pattern of thoughts, behaviors, and fears that make it that much easier to manifest the worst physical reality. The power, the power of our beliefs. And we can see this here. You know, I think another, you know, very powerful example is, is self-doubt. And how many moments has there been of self-doubt in this room? You know, doubt about your capacity to do the practice, or your doubt, doubt about your ability to um, do what you're, what you're proceeding to do, uh, doubt about who you are as a human being, feelings of worthlessness, however. And the identification with that doubt, how debilitating it can be, and how much we can spiral into more and more associations once we start believing in that. So I want to invite us to bring some doubt, in this case, great doubt, as opposed to the small doubt that I just mentioned, some doubt about what's moving through our minds, and to see if we might be able to bring some mindful attention 
to the way that we're forming these views in our mind, either about ourselves or about others or about the retreat here, and to see if we can allow it to to dissolve, coming back into the stillness, coming back into the spaciousness of things, maybe not holding on to them so tightly. And in doing that, seeing what happens when we don't believe these thoughts and ideas and perceptions and images so strongly. This is the way we come out of our delusion through our mindfulness. And we can do this particularly when we find ourselves or feel ourselves getting caught. This could be the signal to turn our mindfulness towards the thought process, towards the feelings that are arising, see what's going on. And right in the moment of recognition of that thought pattern, relax. Just let yourself relax. And this relaxation is what frees the mind of this attachment, frees the mind of this identification. Because every moment of mindfulness in this way weakens our attachment. Every moment of mindfulness in this way reinforces non-clinging and clear, clear seeing. And over time, we do hold our views more lightly. We do doubt what's going through our minds. We don't take it quite so seriously, but perhaps rely more on our immediate, direct experience of things. The Buddha said in one of his texts, one of his teachings, he said, non-identification with anything has been declared by the Blessed One. For in whatever way one conceives, the fact is other than that. I think that's a very powerful statement. For whatever way one conceives, the fact is other than that. Something for us to ponder on. And as we begin to let go, it means we have to be, we start becoming more comfortable with not knowing. If we're not holding on quite so tightly to what's running through our minds. Perhaps we're left more with the not knowing. And truly, what do we really know for sure? What do we really know for sure? So can we let go and rest more and more in the mystery of things, more and more in the freshness of not knowing. Let our words, our stories, our descriptions of things quiet down. And let something else come through. Maybe something that's much more reliable than our small little minds are telling us. This is from Huang Po, a fourth-century Zen patri- uh, the Zen patriarch of China. Let the mind, together with its world, be quieted down to a perfect state of tranquility. Let thought be cast in the mystery of quietude. When the mind is tranquilized in its deepest abode, its entanglements are cut asunder. Let go. Let yourself drop into that stillness, into that silence. Do we really need all these words? Do we really need all these stories? When someone asked a Blackfoot hunter and warrior named Crowfoot 
the question, what is life? He said, it is the flash of a firefly in night. It is the breath of a buffalo in the winter. How simple. And this is from Mechthild of Magdeburg. Of all that God has shown me, I can speak just the smallest word. Not more than a honeybee takes on her foot from an overspilling jar. So let go and let the silence speak. Hear what the silence has to say to us. And I'll end with this quote from Ajahn Chah, the great forest meditation master. Each person has his own, his or her own natural pace. Some of you will die at age 50, some at age 65, and some at age 90. So too, your practice will not all be identical. Don't think or worry about this. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become quieter and quieter in any surroundings. It will become still like a clear forest pool. Then all kinds of wonderful and rare animals will come to drink at the pool. You will see clearly the nature of all things in the world. You will see many wonderful and strange things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. <laughs>